0: From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge. We have an interesting conversation today with a licensed clinical social worker and fashion therapist about reflecting yourself through your clothing and cleaning out your closet. But first... I'm going to say something that probably won't come as a surprise. Structural racism is deeply connected with poor health, but knowing it intuitively is true and having research to back it up are two different things. That's why I'm so excited to talk with Dr. Danushika Mohadege. She's an assistant professor in Institute of Health Equity Research at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the Barbara T. Murphy Division of Nephrology. And Dr. Ebony Bowler, Dean of the Wake Forest University School of Medicine and Chief Science Officer and Vice Chief Academic Officer of Advocate Health. Their research uses hyperlocal data including de-identified electronic health records from my city, Durham, North Carolina, to explore the ties between structural racism and disease. Their study, Residential Structural Racism and Prevalence of Chronic Health Conditions, was published in JAMA Network Open. Thank you and welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Well, Dr. Bolwer, to begin our conversation, why did you... And Dr. Mohatagay, you know, decide on focusing this particular study in Durham, North Carolina.
2: Well, first, Leonita, I'd like to thank our collaborators. First, I'm honored to be here with Dr. Mohatagay, but also there were several others at Duke University, Tina, Dr. Tina Davenport, Dr. Newpin Bobzar, investigators at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, North Carolina State, Northwell Health, and the Wake Forest University School of Medicine who all collaborated on this project. We decided to do this work in Durham because Durham is committed to health and it's very it's diverse. It's the city of medicine C- they call it. City of medicine. And so we we wanted to look at Durham County, you know, surrounding the city of medicine. And it's so because it's so diverse, yet we have extremes of wealth and poverty and extremes of living conditions. So it provided an opportunity for us to study this question. And then also because there's such an interest in this area and understanding the determinants of health, uh, this was work that was the culmination, has been the culmination of over 10 years of work on the part of the Durham County Public Health Department, Duke University and Lincoln Community Health Center to, to work on ways to look at the data that we have
0: in our area
2: to understand how the conditions where people live affect their health.
0: So what do we know about the numbers then when it comes to the prevalence of those three diseases that you focused on in this study? You know, hypertension, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease, especially among these communities of color. Well, we know that these conditions are highly prevalent
2: in the United States, and there are three major conditions that we uh, are fighting against nationally. They are conditions also where the prevalence of disease are much higher among communities of color and individuals of color. For example, there's a four times greater rate of kidney disease in individuals of color particularly black individuals when compared to non-black individuals and white white individuals in particular and we see similar types of patterns for high blood pressure and diabetes so these are three key conditions where we were interested in understanding what is the influence of the conditions where people of color may live or are subject to and how could that
0: be related to health well I've heard, that probably almost all my life, you know, have family that are in the health profession. And it just seems like a topic and a concern that folks and professionals in the health field have been working on forever. And so when I think about this research, I guess it allows you to dig a little deeper and be even more specific, you know, when we're looking at communities like the community you focused on in Durham.
2: Yeah. You know, as you said in the beginning, everybody has a sense of something going on, but having data to try to better understand those relationships and demonstrate correlations, it's very powerful because it gives us something to work with and to move forward with. So we thought about structural racism and the way that we define that are neighborhood conditions that work together to create environments that discriminate against and disadvantage racial and ethnic minoritized individuals. Um, And so we specifically were looking at 16 factors that we had information about here in, in Durham County, and those include housing, employment, education, criminal justice, voting practices, and even green spaces, several different factors. And we wanted to look at those as manifestations of structural racism, things that were influenced by policies that have historically discriminated against ethnic and racial minorities, using those as indicators of the presence of structural racism, and then to say, what do we know about the health of individuals who may be more or less subject to those environmental conditions within Durham County.
0: So when we think of structural racism, um how does that differ from other kinds of racism when it comes to like health outcomes? Racism
2: can be categorized in a number of different ways. The most common way that racism is thought of is sort of interpersonal racism, which are an individual's beliefs about the characteristics of another individual and the way that they may treat that individual or regard that individual. Structural racism really refers to the way environmental factors align themselves to affect individuals of specific races in common ways that are detrimental. So again, as I mentioned, housing, employment, other types of environments that they all seem to line up and disadvantage ethnic and racial minoritized individuals. So the structures are the things that affect the environment, where you live, what kinds of education are available, criminal justice practices, your access to healthy foods. These are things that are in the environment that actually align to create those disadvantaged conditions. And they're structural elements. They're influenced by policies, So they're not so much the individual's behavior. It's how the environment works to influence the individual or the people that live in that environment.
0: It makes you actually think that these are things you just that just can't be changed. They haven't been changed yet. That's how they are. And a lot of people of color have to live within those confines and hopefully— you know, somehow try to better their health conditions even with these things in place. Well, I think that is,
2: you know, that's been the traditional thinking, oh, these things are the way they are. But in truth, these things are all influenced by policies that can be changed and can be influenced, and every factor that we identified is a factor that could be influenced by a policy change or decision made at a local level. And so we want to move away from thinking that these are the way things are and and move into a space of action where we realize these things can be changed and they they actually may influence our daily lives as well as things, as, including our health, something as important as our health.
0: Well, one thing that makes this study so important here is the data You were able to use. So, Dr. Mohattenge, tell me about why you decided to take on this like unique project using localized data.
1: One of the most uh, amazing things about the opportunity to work on this study was our ability to use data that is so local to Durham County. Things that people who are living in Durham across different neighborhoods have seen uh, influencing their own communities and their own health. So things like eviction, speaking to an ongoing housing affordability crisis in Durham uh, that we know about. Things like green space that are measured uh, locally. And things like uh, the ability to access food, et cetera, are all part of this really unique, uh, democratized data platform that Dr. Boulware and many others built. Um, this type of platform allows us to see that these racialized structures and policies have not only influenced poverty and education, things that are often linked to structural racism, but they are also deeply intertwined with other outcomes, for example, housing, voting access. So, for instance, our ability to use a variable like voting participation in the primary election in Durham. Uh, was really unique to the study and I think made it more powerful in our ability to understand the expansiveness of structural and systemic racism and its impact on health.
0: Mm. So what's so different about the data that you used and why was the use of it so important?
1: So I, I think, you know, that part of the data that made this powerful are those contextual elements, right? The neighborhood level factors that were provided by, for instance, the Durham Housing Authority, uh, the Durham elections groups that sort of measured those variables over time, which are often not available in other cities or other locations. Um, but the other really amazing thing about this study was our ability to leverage actual health data from individual Patients who seek their care at Duke Health and at Lincoln Community Health Center, right? So we're really covering with that uh, a really broad, nearly an estimated 85% of Durham County's population seeking care in those two uh, healthcare institutions, um, one of which, which again, is capturing a really unique and amazing uh, part of the population—individuals who might be, for instance, undocumented, who might have limited access to healthcare through a federally qualified health center like Lincoln, as well as individuals who are getting their care at Duke. So, um, you know, again, the use of actual health data linked with data that is locally sourced, locally important, and reflects elements of structural racism uh, is what made this study possible, and I think what made some of the findings so important
0: was well, definitely very interesting to have these these numbers. Well, you know, after the break we'll hear more from Dr. Denishika Mohatike and Dr. Ebony Bolware about this study and the work beyond Durham that they've done on issues of health inequity. I'm Leonita Inge and this is Do South on WUNC. Welcome back to Do South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge. I'm talking with two doctors who were part of the research team that produced a recent study that's been called groundbreaking. The title is Residential Structural Racism and Prevalence of Chronic Health Conditions, and it was published in JAMA Network Open. I'm here with Dr. Danushika Mohantinke, Assistant Professor in Institute of Health Equity Research at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the Barbara T. Murphy Division of Nephrology, and Dr. Ebony Bulwer, Dean of Wake Forest University School of Medicine and Chief Science Officer and Vice Chief Academic Officer of Advocate Health. Well, first of all, I'd like to know, um, some results of this study on structural racism and health outcomes. Dr. Mohatan what did you and your fellow researchers find as you delved into Durham, North Carolina's residential neighborhoods?
1: So thank you. We found uh, several really uh, important things. First, we found that indicators of structural racism, so, for instance, greater percentages and rates of poverty, et cetera, were more prevalent in communities that were more minoritized, meaning they had more people of color or racial and ethnic minorities in them. And similarly, just as we found a greater burden of those structural racism indicators in those neighborhoods that are more minoritized, we found that linked to poorer health. So a greater prevalence of chronic kidney disease diabetes, and hypertension were found in those same neighborhoods with the greater burden of structural racism and a greater percentage of racial and ethnic minorities. And we found strong associations between structural racism indicators and each of those
0: conditions. So is that like saying you you found that, you know, more people of color percentage-wise in Durham or the neighborhoods that you focused on have more a higher incidence of diabetes and hypertension than say, you know, the white or Latino residents, for example?
1: So this, this study actually looks at uh, the overall sort of prevalence of the condition in the neighborhood, not necessarily specific to the race. Uh, But we did find, again, in neighborhoods that had a greater percentage of racial and ethnic minorities who we defined as individuals who are Black, Hispanic, Latino, Native American, uh, and Asian, or people who self-identified their race as other neighborhoods with a greater percentage of those minoritized individuals had the overall greater prevalence of chronic kidney disease, diabetes, and hypertension. And this... Really does mirror a lot of the national findings that we've long spoken about.
0: My mind went straight there when, um, for example, um, Dr. Bolwer mentioned the Lincoln Health Center, and I know that neighborhood well. I actually don't live too far away from there, and, and I know that 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 census track is pretty is largely African American in that area. So that's that's why I brought that up. But did anything surprise you? You know, um, anything unexpected? when you, when the findings came through?
1: I think in many ways, this was a, a test of a hypothesis that we all actually felt like the results would map out exactly the way that they did in many ways. I think it was really important, though, to test the hypothesis, for instance, that things like evictions matter. Things mm. like voter access matter. This is evidence that conversations about policies and practices, for instance, gerrymandering policies, policies that are continuing to erode voting rights, really matter as it pertains to health. So I think that was one important finding. And and few studies have been able to draw the links to indicators of structural racism, such as voting. The second thing is, um, this was an important study to deviate away from the notion that there is something about race that is linked to biology, right? So what we're showing is that it's really a lot of socio-contextual conditions that are harmful or disadvantaging, that disproportionately burden racial and ethnically minoritized people. And it is those very factors that really impact health. And so those very factors should be the uh, focus of policymakers and innovative platforms that are really trying to transform health and improve equity in health.
0: Well, Dr. Boware given the findings, you know, what are some of your takeaways and recommendations? I recommend that the mayor sit in here with us as we have this discussion today, even the governor, you know, even our legislator, because that's, you know, it's not just a health story anymore. It, like you said, it's, it's policy and maybe even politics. Absolutely.
2: The recommendations really are that we engage as a community to look at how we can affect these policy conditions that affect health, that are influenced health. I agree. it's It's our leaders, it's our policymakers and our administrators who influence how policies on poverty, policies on education, policies on zoning laws, policies on voting practices policies on crime and criminal justice, all of these policies are related to health. And so what we need is a collaborative effort of all individuals from grassroots community efforts all the way through our top-level officials to look at how these policies can be changed to improve the conditions that people live in and to influence the health of our community.
0: You know, when you use the data from... Public health or public data sources and de identified electronic health records that were able to like pinpoint some very interesting results that we are discussing now about Durham. But do the findings from Durham tell us anything about like the surrounding areas in the region or even the state? So, Durham has many characteristics that other areas of the
2: state have, but one important message is that we need more of this kind of work in every community. So what made this, as Dr. Mahatage said, a very special study is that we had the willingness for healthcare organizations to provide de-identified, carefully de-identified data. We had the willingness of the uh, Department of Public Health to really obtain those data and make sure that they could be um, lined up with other data from our community. And we need these types of efforts across north carolina and elsewhere to do the same kind of work so we can understand this in even greater depth
0: you know i have to ask you know as like with any research study you know there are limitations <laughs> to what can be gleaned from the data so what would you like say not able to find from this particular data if anything
2: well i think it's important that these data are what we call kind of cross-sectional, meaning we identified these factors in the community and we measured health at the very same time. So in order to show that these factors truly cause this, we need to do these types of studies over longer time periods. So the availability of these data show us that there's a very definitive, strong link. And what we now need to do is look over time and say, also, are they getting better? Are they getting worse when we change policies, when we change the environment? So we need to be studying this continuously. This is not just a one and done type of a a program or project. This has to be done continuously by communities. I think that's probably the biggest thing. The other thing is Dr. Mahatage did mention is that what we're looking at is the wholesale health of a neighborhood. So not every individual in a neighborhood has chronic kidney disease or high blood pressure or diabetes. But what we're saying is as a neighborhood as a whole, this neighborhood's residents have greater burden of these conditions. So we can't draw the conclusions to the individual. We have to look at the community. At the same time, that community focus is what allows us to say, hey, the things that influence the community are policies.
0: Definitely. You know, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you over, <laughs> for the next several years. You know, I'd like to say that we've been having a great conversation with um, Dr. Danushika Mohatinke and Dr. Ebony Bolware about, you know, this study and the work beyond Durham, you know, that's being done and discussed on issues of health inequity. Dr. Mohatake, you know, how can this research sort of inform direct patient care? Or is it more about, you know, larger policies that we've been talking about? And then funnel into better overall health outcomes.
1: Thank you for that question. I think there's so much to be learned uh, from uh, this study for clinicians and people who are doing that direct healthcare service delivery. And that is, this is just a reminder that what a person sees uh, in that direct patient clinician interaction is just one piece of their life and one piece of the many socio-contextual factors that actually impact their health. So, I think from this study, you know, there's there's several things that that can be gleaned and one is that clinicians have a responsibility to provide what we call structurally competent care and that is care that really Recognizes and tries to address those unequal socio-contextual factors like housing and poverty uh, within the care that they provide. That is essential to really moving the natal to improve that individual's health, but also to have an impact on community health. And with this study, I think it's a you know it's a call to action for clinicians, mm. um, for everyone who is a direct healthcare service provider to remember that advocating for policy change uh, is a critical part of really moving the needle toward health equity. And just as racialized systems, laws, and practices have undergirded some of the health disparities that we've long described in the United States and in Durham, those same laws can be leveraged for equity and for just outcomes. So I see this as a call to action in many ways.
0: You know, you two used to work together at Duke University in Durham, what did it mean to you to be doing research, you know, in the city of Durham that is like so specific to um, neighborhoods where I'm sure many of your patients, you know, have come from? Very
2: personal experience because both of us are clinicians too. As you said, our, our patients living in these neighborhoods, us living in these neighborhoods and feeling that very direct applicability of this research to the daily lives of of us and those of us who lived in, in these neighborhoods. You know, as you mentioned earlier on, we often may live in a neighborhood or drive through a neighborhood, and we just sort of think that's the way it is. And this really gave us an opportunity for us to think carefully, study carefully, Neighborhood conditions, what influences neighborhood conditions? How do we describe neighborhood conditions and quantify those and relate those to the experiences that mean so much to us? We all either have personally been affected by health conditions or we have family members and friends who've been affected by these conditions. These are some of the most common conditions we have to, to deal with on a day in, day out basis. As a primary care physician, I see all, all three of these conditions all the time. So it just really had a meaning to be looking at our local environment and thinking about how are the people that we're interacting with on a day-in, day-out basis, whether they be our friends, our loved ones, our colleagues, our co-workers, our neighbors, influenced by these factors that we don't think about because they're part of our just daily experiences.
0: And and it's difficult even for me to drive down a street, say Fayetteville Street, and see people standing around a tin bin with a fire trying to keep warm at night. And in two minutes flat, less than two minutes flat, I'm passing by apartments and condos that almost cost a million dollars to live in. So the line is very close, is very thin in looking at these disparities when it comes to the status of one's income and their health. You know, Dr., Gay, I'm going to let you comment too. I know you spent some time in Durham.
1: Yeah, thank you, and I'm I'm very glad to say that Dr. Boer continues to mentor me, and so our relationship remains very strong and close uh, despite my move to New York. In so many ways, um, the experiences that I had in Chapel Hill and Durham for uh, almost 21 years and then the final years of you know taking care of patients at the Durham Veterans Administration and at Duke Hospitals and at Lincoln Community Health i think so much of how individual people have uh, informed even the questions that we've asked here and the hypotheses that we are testing it's from patients own stories about what has impacted their care, their ability to afford things that are critical to their care, like insulin or medications for diabetes that can slow the progression of kidney disease. You know, those very things that we saw and heard as stories from our patients, I think, drove a lot of the questions in this study. And now living in New York, I can say um, this was a transformational experience to be able to use this kind of data that is, again, unique to Durham. I haven't seen anything like it, and it is a model, I think, for many other communities all over the country that have a legacy of historic policies like housing policies and redlining that dramatically impacted communities and have a longstanding effect today. The opportunity to work on this continues to make me think about what is impacting the people that I care for here in New York who are on dialysis, and it it is many of those same conditions. And I hope for a day when uh, nationally we have data sources like the Durham Compass to help investigators do this work and drive change.
0: I'd also like to talk with both of you about kind of yourselves and how your early experiences may have even shaped your work you know, because what you're doing today. I know, Dr. Bulware, if, if I'm correct, that your parents were both physicians um, who cared for patients from historically underserved communities. So maybe if you can just tell me a little bit about kind of the conversations that you had around the dinner table, which I'm sure probably, you know, have impacted, you know, what you do today.
2: Sure. My parents being um, two Black physicians who trained in the 70s, and my dad, who grew up in Jim Crow South in, in a small town in Tennessee, there's always been a very strong focus in our family on how race has directly inf- influenced our lives, their lives as younger people, and then growing you know, and, and raising a family, and the conversations around them as physicians, Black physicians, one of few Black physicians in Cleveland, Ohio, caring for individuals from broad range of backgrounds, many impoverished individuals, uh, people who disproportionately suffer the impact of disadvantage routinely, and how privileged they felt to be able to serve and to help address the effects of racism that they were seeing. Those dinner conversations affected me. Um, I'm sure. You know, it really set up a um almost an intuitive sense that this is something that we need to continue to work on. And so I've spent much of my own career focused on how to improve quality of care, access to care for minoritized individuals, and to improve health equity. So a long journey of on that with, with my own career.
0: Well, Dr. Mohatange, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, what keeps you doing this work for as long as you've been doing it
1: i am the uh, daughter of a kidney doctor myself uh, my mom uh, and dad immigrated to the united states uh, in 1985 in the peak of the one of the uh, peaks of the civil war in sri lanka and we were first in new york like many immigrant stories and i vividly remember. Uh, going to work with her when she was a trainee herself um, at Harlem Hospital. And I remember being struck by uh, the faces of who is on dialysis, um, primarily black and brown people. And what is so startling and disturbing and and certainly a driving factor for me is the fact that this face of who is on dialysis has not changed in this country. That was 1985, the peak of the uh, HIV epidemic in, in in some ways driving that here in New York, and yet you can go to a dialysis unit across the country and see this same pattern, this same disproportionate burden of kidney disease, diabetes, and high blood pressure among primarily, again, black and brown individuals. And I wanted to be part of this uh, change. And so I moved myself to Kentucky and Florida uh, and then ultimately spent 20 years in North Carolina uh, for all of my training. And all of those experiences um, as a Brown person, as an immigrant myself, feeling othered and continuing to witness stark disparities in the way that people um, are treated, the resources and opportunities that they have really drove me to ultimately um, think about a career in medicine. I also just want to make it clear that, you know, for those of us who do pursue paths in medicine, not everybody does health equity research. And it is because of tremendous mentorship, folks like Dr. Bulware, who has been my mentor for now over a decade, um, that I have felt inspired and able to not only, you know, focus on the care that I give to my individual patients but on doing this kind of research that I hope um, will result in transformative policy.
0: That's Dr. Danushika Mohadege, along with Dr. Ebony Ballware. More when we come back. I'm Leonida Inge. This is Due South. This is Due South. I'm Leonida Inge. Later this hour taking care of that Christmas tree that's still sitting in your house, even though you know you should have taken it down about three weeks ago. Hey, we've all been there. Then co-host Jeff DeBerry speaks with a fashion therapist about cleaning out your closet and expressing yourself through clothing. First, let's get back to Dr. Ebony Bolware talking about structural racism and its connection to poor health outcomes. And I had one final question that I had to ask her Dr. Bolware, you know, you're the dean at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. And, you know, it makes me think about, you know, the training that has to take place in in those, um, you know, the, the school, medical schools across the country just to make sure students are aware that there is implicit bias at times and how to not be biased when it comes to making sure that all people, no matter their color or, you know, their economic status, you know, are treated well when it comes to their health. This could be the subject of an entirely (laughs) original
2: show about how we think about race in medicine. It's critically important at this time that we are training healthcare professionals who understand the full range of factors that individuals, our patients, are subject to that affect and influence their health. And the environments that we live in explain significant amount of our health and well-being and we're just now coming into the time where we can begin to demonstrate this through research like the study that we did as a dean of a medical school I feel incredible responsibility to ensure that all of our students think about the patients that we see think about the conditions that they experience as factors that influence their health we have traditionally been trained that if I give a patient a medicine that they will become well Or get better and now we understand that that's not the case that much of what influences people's health and well-being are the influences that are outside of that medical interaction we need to consider all of those factors both what can happen in the medical interaction but also what's happening in our communities in the environment that we need to work with to help people achieve their best possible health and so I think moving forward at all medical schools we really need to focus in on how these social determinants of health are very important for our next generation of healthcare professionals to become comfortable with understanding, to understand how they influence and are operationalized in our patients' lives so that we can improve health and health equity.
0: Well, I've been talking with Dr. Danushika Mohatagay of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, and Dr. Ebony. Bulware, you know, Dean of the Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and I'd just like to thank you for joining me today, and just keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Leonida. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Leonita. It was really a delight and an honor to be on here.
0: I'm Leonita Inge. This is Due South.
3: This is Do South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tibiri. New Year means resolutions, and for some, cleaning out the garage, organizing the kitchen, and maybe even that daunting task of getting into your closet. We're going to chat with Marisol Collette, the fashion therapist, a psychotherapist, and a personal stylist. She got a social work degree, but today spends time helping people undergo successful closet inventories. And she joins us from Asheville, Marisol. Welcome to Do South. I want to touch briefly on the closet cleanout. You've got an eight-step uh, process to a successful closet inventory. Let's not necessarily go through all eight, but but uh, give me an overview of it, or tell me what uh, maybe makes this closet cleanout unique or different from some of the other ones that uh, do exist in the marketplace?
4: Sure. Uh, I'll focus on what makes it unique. Well, I'll say for one, uh, it's it's technique-based, so there are going to be some similarities to other people who can teach you how to go through your closet. But the difference is, is with each step, you're checking in. How do you feel? How does it feel to pull out all of the clothes in your closet? What do you notice? What does that mean to you? What are the things that you see that are on repeat there? And then because this is going to begin to inspire like, oh, I had no idea that this one's a regular. I had so much black in my closet. Okay. So then we would explore why so much black. Is it about not knowing what else to wear? Is it that you really look good in black? Is it a color that's truly right for you? Or is it about hiding? Um, you know, I don't take people in too deep with it. I think it might be 10 steps. I haven't looked at it in a while, but I think, I think Cole over there was working on it. So it might be 10. Steps. So you tell me, um, but yeah, regardless in the steps, it's, it is an opportunity. I think one of the steps is breathe, breathe, have a good time. Let's have a good time. All right, I've
3: actually uh, got it right here. Uh, use these steps for a closet cleanout. If you're listening at home and you're like, I really want this guide, it's called How to Conduct a Successful Closet Cleanout, and you can find it at SolReflection.com. You've got step one, take everything out of your closet. Easy enough. Step two, loosely organize all your pieces by color. That's interesting. Skipping ahead a little bit, step four, start separating your clothes into one, pieces you like a lot, two, pieces you only kind of like, and three, pieces you don't like at all. And then step five, right? Just like you said, Marisol, pause for a breath.
4: I'm not trying to take people into a really difficult world on their own. That's what I'm here for is to do that with you. Uh, But it is it is all oriented around how are we seeing what we see in our closets and how are we relating that back to who we are?
3: You noted earlier that just maybe 10 to 20 percent of your your clients are men, but I am a man. I've got to lean into it a little bit. Male style, by and large, is it's like reductive, basic, not a lot of colors. I'm wondering how, from your perspective, we on the male side can spice things up or if there are best practices for what you think men can or should do.
4: Yeah isn't it a shame that that there just aren't as many options it's uh it is, yeah, it is. and you know another one of my big soapboxes is how capitalism and patriarchy have put us all into boxes men women folks on the gender spectrum it's we're all just supposed to Play into you know whatever we've been told to do, and I think that men get you know get a big brunt of it. We all know how women are oppressed, but, but men too. You don't have the same freedom of, exp- of expression, and you have a lot of expectations on you to look a certain way—happy, healthy, strong, powerful, etc. And so, I love to figure out how do we want to break out of the box, and how do we want to take what's available because we're still limited to some degree as to what's available. But how do we want to take that and make the subtle changes in these shifts. You know, here in Asheville, North Carolina, we're in the mountains and you see a lot of flannels. And then you see all these women out and they look so amazing because they have so much more freedom of choice. And uh, and then the men are sitting with them and I'm like, oh man, there's such an opportunity here to meet your counterpart in their full expression of themselves. So Uh, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to use a little color. Don't be afraid to stand out a little bit. For everybody, this is for everybody. It is amazing how inspiring we can be to people when we show up as our most bold and beautiful selves. People are not turned off by that. They're actually really inspired to do the same for themselves. And when we are deeply connected to the truth of who we are, we show up so much better. Authenticity and vulnerability we know is really important for connection. And as humans, we need connection. So don't be afraid to take a risk. It'll probably make you a new friend or two. And if somebody doesn't like it, that's also okay. That's not your person.
3: Marisol Colette is with us on Due South. Uh, she is a personal stylist and also a psychotherapist. And I want to I want to relate things back to who you are, if only for a moment. Uh, you and your husband, Adam, are the hosts of a podcast. It's the Reading Aloud podcast. You mentioned, we've talked a little bit about your journey here, your professional journey. You had uh, a Personal challenge, or per, mm-hmm. a personal—I don't even know the best word for it. You overcame cancer. Okay. Um, you dealt with infertility, and um, th- these are big, heavy life issues. Here, um, weave your husband into this conversation, if you would. Here, I and mean, he's not with us.
4: Yeah, well, he's the biggest supporter, but I am also so inspired by him. The way that it, the way that he thinks is unlike anybody I've ever met, and I know that. Um, and hope that this is true, that we love, love our partners and think they are the most special person in the world, Uh, then that is true for us. I also know that Adam has something to say that I've not heard anybody else say. And a lot of um, my friends and his friends call him unicorn, a unicorn. But what he does is he's, he's just got such a keen capacity to see uh, the deeper meaning behind things, in particular with with work with men, but in relationship, I mean, I, I, my recommendation would be that you all listen to it. At one point, we made the top one hundred relationship podcasts on Apple, so it's good. Um, and it is like being a fly on the wall with our journey through infertility. I mean, one of the one of the most important uh, podcasts we recorded was sitting in the bathtub after we had just found out we were not pregnant for a you know another month in a row, and just the vulnerability of being a fly on the wall of us sitting on the floor in the bathroom and me in the bathtub with my tears and our sadness on display. But you know, it's it's really special. And the the idea of the name reading aloud is that we believe that we're not experts. Now I just talked him up and I think he's really amazing. I think he has a lot to share, but we're not experts. We just are honest and we're open and we're willing to let you all hear about that. But I I do believe that, you know, when we have those open conversations and you all get to hear them, our hope is that you have them too with the people that you love to build conversation, which builds connection. I mean, most of what Adam and I do in the world just comes back to love and connection to self and others.
3: Okay. Let's take a listen to a clip from a little bit of a lighter discussion on the podcast. So
4: anyways, we're going to talk about shopping today because I am a fashion therapist. So a fashion therapist means that I have taken my love and expertise around fashion and I have combined it with my extensive training as a therapist. So anytime I was ever doing anything fashion related with girlfriends and talking to them about what they loved, what they didn't love, shopping with them, going through their closets, they were always claiming that they were having a very transformational experience. That was a long time ago since then I've developed this program where I offer actual fashion therapy and it's so much fun. So one of the things that I love comes super easy to me is shopping. So we're going to talk about shopping today because you, I mean,
2: uh, are the best. Yeah. Well, Co-shopper. What, what, what else? Of course. I'm
5: what else? <laughs> <laughs> this is why I said we should have hit record because we're perfectly for pocket.
3: <laughs> That's Marisol and Adam Collette on the Reading Aloud podcast. You have learned a lot about yourself in this journey. Uh, I'm. I was going to ask you what you've learned about yourself, but that that i don't think we have enough time for that so let me ask you uh how do i want to ask this I'll, I'll ask it this way um what is next for you in this journey whether it's wherever whatever it may be but what what's next for you
4: You caught me at a great time. I am taking daily naps to figure that out. (laughs) I don't
0: know how else
4: to say it other than I'm I'm taking more time off right now because I actually have the same question for myself. My business has grown so much; it grew exponentially in the last few years, and um, and I'm I'm curious, you know, with. Any anytime I have a platform, so thank you all for giving me one today. Anytime I have a platform, the idea is, is that how can I utilize that for the betterment of others? All I want to do is make the world a better place in whatever way that I can and support people people being their best selves. So, you know, the, the bigger my business gets, the more people I have, uh, am able to connect with the people with, um, uh, they have a bigger platform then you know, I, I get to make a bigger impact, but I need to be really mindful. Having that kind of power is, um, is, you know, not to be, not to be taken lightly. So I'm running, I'm going to figure it out too. I'm going to figure it out. So I'll be taking a nap later today and see what I see what I find out.
3: Good luck with the siesta. (laughs) Uh, Marisol Colette, the fashion therapist based in Asheville is a personal stylist and also a psychotherapist, and she has been uh, sharing some of her journey and some of its details with us here on Do South. as Soul, thanks for uh, joining us and chatting with us.
4: Thank you so much, y'all.
3: Late last year, I had a conversation about Christmas trees with Dr. Jamie Bookwalter and Dr. Jim Hamilton, both of the NC State Cooperative Extension. It was a fun, wide-ranging discussion, and we did touch on that sad time when the lights come down. When does your Christmas tree come down for the season, Jamie?
5: <laughs> uh, I mean, growing up, I, I my birthday is in middle of February. I mean, my family, I remember my Christmas tree, our Christmas tree still being up for my birthday. I mean, I think we, (laughs) I think we, my mom had other, uh, mom and dad other uh, priorities, but in our house, there's no telling. We're still, you know, with young kids, we're still trying to figure out which way is up.
6: (laughs) Jim, what about you? Well, I, I I take the Tony Soprano approach. I dispose of my my Christmas tree right along, you know, just behind the wood line of the house, very discreetly, and where it uh, where it 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 turns back into the environment. Uh, you know, you can also do the uh, I call it the sleep with the fishes approach, which is probably another Soprano analogy, where you can attach that tree to a, a cinder block and pitch it in a pond, and really create good habitat for fish. So I I my 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 approach and technique has varied over the years but my favorite the favorite one for me but not with the kids one one Christmas and we we typically dispose of our tree pretty soon after Christmas um but we had a lot of snow on the ground and we had, the, the tree had been outside on the wood line for about 2 or 3 months and uh, it, it ended up in the fire pit you know, one night and that really disturbed my kids. My kids did not want to see me see see me burn the old Christmas tree. <laughs> so so uh, but over the last several years, I, I bring my parents a, a Fraser fir back to Alabama from the mountains and my mom will take a Fraser fir and slather it in peanut butter. And throw a couple no. bags of Pennington's bird seed all over it and leave it on the wow. porch. And she buys these little <laughs> peanut butter seed ornaments. So, you know, it really kills the holiday spirit in March when dad has to go out and, and finally dispose of the tree and clean up all of the other gifts that the birds have left on our wooden <laughs> porch. No no idea But you they...
5: should check with your <laughs> go ahead, you Jenny. should check with your local government. If you don't have a place to, you know, burn your tree or create a massive <laughs> bird sanctuary. (laughs) Um, I do know, you know, here in Asheville, we have a recycling program and and the city will come collect your trees. And my brother's actually a river engineer out in Fort Collins, Colorado, and they used, um, the city of Fort Collins, used a bunch of Christmas trees
3: to shore up um, riverbanks. And if you live by the coast, you might be able to do what they do at Fort Macon in Carteret County. Fort Macon State Park uses Christmas trees to restore the dunes around the coastal areas of the park. I'm Jeff Tabiri. You've been listening to Do South from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Talk to you again tomorrow.